Hey guys, welcome to church. My name's Jeremy. I'm an infrastructure pastor here at Thorn Creek, and I'm just excited to bring this message to you. Wasn't it good to see Pastor Ruben up here? Yeah. He warmed you guys all up for me, so make sure you keep that energy going, okay? Um, I'm excited. Let's pray, and we'll jump into this message. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love and your grace. Father God, thank you for being here. Ah, thank you for the breath that's in our lungs. God, thank you for the the blood that's pumping through our bodies. God, thank you for life. God, it's all by your grace that we're even here. And I just thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to uh, bring this message today. Lord, I pray that you would um, use me. Use me for your glory and for your kingdom. God, if there's anything that you need me to skip in this transcript, God, just let me do it. And if there's anything you want me to say that's not on it, bring it to my mind. God, set me aside and just use me. God, we, uh, we thank you for your word in advance, and uh, God, we ask that you would move in our hearts. We give you full permission to move any way you want. God, I ask that you just fill this place with your Holy Spirit. Walk among us as we read your word. Pierce our hearts, God, and make us more like you. God, we thank you for Pastor Reuben, and just pray you continue to heal his body. God, we, uh, we give this all to you in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are in our series, Fan or Follower. This is our fourth week. If you've missed any of them, go to YouTube. Check out those messages. Catch up on what's going on. Um, but we're talking about a fan versus a follower of Jesus. And we've been using these definitions. A fan is a enthusiastic admirer. This is the person, and you know, we've talked about kind of the sports person who, who likes the team, who sits in the stands, doesn't have any skin in the game necessarily, but they know all the, all the stats. They know all of the history of the team. They know everything that's going on. They like to watch the team. They make, they make commitments based on that, but uh, they're not willing to change their life for it. Uh, if you're a fan of Jesus, you know his stories, you like what he says, maybe you'll post some of them, those quotes online, but you're not willing to change your life just because of Jesus. You're, you're kind of sitting in those stands and there's those points where you're willing to go, you know what, Jesus, that's a little too much. Or you know what, Jesus, that's, that's personal, that's, that's my life. That's the fan of Jesus. Now, the follower is a devoted disciple. This is the person that's made the commitment. This is, uh, there's a requirement for the follower to participate participate in what's going on, in what Jesus is doing in this world. And they've made that commitment to be devoted to them, to, uh, to be devoted to Jesus, to, to follow him and everything. And they're also a disciple, meaning they're willing to grow and to learn. They, they know that they need to be more like Jesus and they know that they haven't arrived yet. And so they're looking to Jesus to change them, to, to speak into their lives. This is the follower of Jesus. And so today we're going to look at that that, uh, that fan or follower mentality when we look at relationships. What does it look like in our relationships with others? Whether we're a fan or we're a follower. Uh, today's message is a rule follower or a relationship follower. Are any of you rule followers? Um, I'm a rule follower. Uh, this week I went hunting, which may not surprise many of you, but I took Tyler with us. We went to go turkey hunting and we got up really early. In fact, what I like to call double early, that's early, early. That's what you get up is uh, to go turkey hunting. And we went out, we drove. And so we ended up at the stoplight at like four something in the morning and no one else is out at the stoplight. No one else is driving around. I mean, we can look, we can see, you know, down the street, there's no one coming. We're, we're supposed to turn left and there's a red arrow. And so we're sitting there and we're kind of sitting there and we're kind of sitting there. And then I look over to Tyler and I go, uh, are you a rule follower? 
And I go, I'm a rule follower, so, so I'll probably just sit here until the light turns green. Even though there's no one around, I can just run this red light. It doesn't make sense to stay, stay there. But the rule says, stay here until the light turns green. I'm a rule follower. I stayed there. Until we, well, I think we only sat there about a minute or something. But Tyler talked about a time where he was at a, at a light where it was like 15 minutes, and finally he just ran it because he's a rule follower as well. But, you know, rules are helpful. We need rules, uh, especially when we're driving. We need to understand the expectations of what we're doing on the road. You know, the yellow line means this. The white line means this. We need to have this agreed to uh, rules so that we don't crash into each other. But sometimes those rules don't make sense. You know, I've, I've come to understand and to believe that, that most rules aren't important 100% of the time. They don't always make sense. There are nuances to life and to what's going on. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've called into customer service once or twice and you have a situation and you end up in the like the policy dead end. Sorry, that's our policy. We can't change that. Sorry, that's our policy. And they, they can't go any further. And, and you recognize, you're like, well, I have this situation and, and it, that policy doesn't make sense in my situation, but they go, nope, that's our policy. We just have to stand there. And we recognize why those policies are there, why those rules are there, because there are people who take advantage. There are people who try to game the system or commit fraud. And so companies have to build policy and policy and policy and make the rules. And, and so those make sense. But when you're, when you're not one of those people, when you're not trying to commit fraud, when you're not trying to game the system, that's kind of the furthest thing from your mind. You hear the policy, you're like, that does not make any sense. I, I don't want to follow that rule because, because you should be helping me. You should, be, you should care about the relationship that we have. That's more important than the policy, than the rule. That's what we run into. And the, the challenge is that it's possible for us to do that in our lives. It's possible for us to do that in our lives with our relationships. Where, where something happens in our life. And so we say, well, time for a new policy. We're not going to have that happen again. You know, maybe, maybe you've been hurt. And so, you know, what? I'm not, I'm not going to open up. I'm not going to be vulnerable anymore with anyone because I'm not going to get hurt again. Or you've been lied to. So you're like, I'm not going to trust anyone anymore. I'm always going to, I'm always going to believe that they, they might be lying to me. And so I'm not going to have that happen again. I'm never going to be taken advantage of. So I'm going to make a rule. I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk to people about this part of my life because they might take advantage of me, or I'm not going to give them my time because they may take advantage of me. We may make a rule because I like, I'm not going to share my opinion anymore because I might just get insulted again. I don't like being insulted for what I believe or my opinions or, or the things that I say. So I'm just, I'm going to shut up. I'm not going to talk to people anymore. We can make these policies in our lives and, and affect our relationships. We can, we can just shut things down. And, and that's the fan. The fan is okay with limiting their interactions with others based on those personal policies, those personal rules in how they're going to deal with people. They're, they're willing to just shut things down, to create boundaries and, and these places where like, we're just not going to go there anymore. Because I'm not going to get hurt anymore. I'm not willing to be open anymore. I'm not going to show love because the last time I showed love, I got hurt. I got taken advantage of. That's the fan mentality is to, is to, to block everything out, to make these rules. And so today we're going to look at a time when Jesus had an interaction with a, with a really expert rule follower. We find it in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus Teacher, he asked, we, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this expert in the law 
Uh, King James Version would call him a lawyer. Uh, he's, a, he's probably likely a scribe. He's someone who knows the Bible in and out, backwards and forwards. He, he is an expert in the law. He has studied the law. He has studied the Old Testament, the Bible, probably more than, than most people ever would. So he really knows the Bible. He is this follower of rules. He understands that there are laws, there are rules in the Old Testament for how we're supposed to interact with people, how we're supposed to deal with uncleanliness, all of those things. He knows this, so he's testing Jesus. He's standing up and he's, he's going to try and trap Jesus into saying something that he probably shouldn't. And, and so he thinks he's, he's more clever than Jesus, and, and he's concerned with all of the steps and the requirements. As he looks at it, the, the relationship with God is about checkboxes. It's about filling out these rules, about following those rules. And if we just follow those rules exactly, then we're going to be okay. That's what he's asking. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life is what he asks Jesus. And he's there to test Jesus. And so let's see what Jesus says in verse 26. It says, what is written in the law? He replied. This is what Jesus says. He says, how did you, how do you read it? And so the man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This expert in the law gets tested by Jesus. Jesus does this really cool thing where he normally does. He answers a question with a question. He kind of flips it over. He says, you're the expert. You tell me. What, what, does the, what does the Bible say? What does the scripture say? What are we supposed to do? And this man answers with the, the greatest commandments. To love God with everything. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus uses this later. We see it in Mark. This is not the exact same scenario that happens in Mark. That's a different one during Passion Week. But Jesus has this same kind of interaction. And he tells someone, the greatest commandment is to love God. And the second commandment is just as, as good as is to love your neighbor. So, so this guy's on the right track and Jesus recognizes it. Um, these things he's quoting are from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.5, that's love God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. And then Leviticus 19.18 is to love your neighbor as yourself. So love God, love people. This expert, he gets it. He understands the rules. And so we see in verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And then verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this guy is asking about eternal life, and then it pivots really quick because he wants to make sure that he understands the rules. We see kind of this lawyer mentality come out, like let's define what a neighbor is. Let's make this definition. Let's really understand it. And if you notice, it says he wanted to justify himself. He recognized that, you know what? I don't love everybody. So let's define who the neighbor is because I'm pretty sure I've, I've loved my neighbor as per my definition. Let's see if Jesus's definition is the same. See, the problem here is, is that this word for neighbor in, in the Hebrew text, in the original Hebrew word is rea. And uh, this is what we see in Leviticus 19. And it means an intimate friend, a fellow or a fellow citizen. The, the Hebrew version, the Israelite version, the, the Jewish version of neighbor is someone who is close to you. It's someone who's part of your same nation. It's, it's someone who's part of your same religion. That's who your neighbor is. There's, there's clear boundaries about who this neighbor is and who you should love. Now, the challenge is the, the Greek word here, plesion, has a couple of meanings. This is, this is what, what Jesus was using. What they were writing in the New Testament was this Greek word, and it means a friend, any other person, or where two are concerned, the other person. 
Uh, according to the Jews, it's any member of the Hebrew nation and commonwealth, but according to Christ, it's any other person, irrespective of nation or religion with whom we live or whom uh, we chance to meet. So Jesus sees this word and he says, it's anyone. That's who your neighbor is. That's the Greek word. The Hebrew says, it's someone you know. It's someone that's part of your circle, part of your tribe. That's who your neighbor is. And what's happening here is this expert in the law is playing the technically game. Do you know the technically game? If you have kids, you know the technically game. And you say, did you take out the trash? And they go, yes. And you go, well, no, you didn't, because the trash can is right there. They say, technically, I took it out of my room, so I took the trash out. Technically game, right? <laughs> did, you, did you put away the dishes? You know, clean up after dinner? Yes, I did. Well, no, you didn't, because the dishes are still in the, dish, in the sink, not in the dishwasher. Well, technically, I took them off the dining room table, so I did it. They're playing the technically game. And that's what this expert of the law is doing. He's like, technically, who's my neighbor? Technically, who do I need to love? You know, we, we can play this. We, we can say, who's my neighbor? Well, they don't live in the same neighborhood, so technically, they're not my neighbor. He's a friend of a friend, so technically, she's an in-law, not really family. So technically, they go to another church. So technically, not my neighbor. Maybe uh, they unfriended me on Facebook, so technically... Not a neighbor. They, she lied to me, so technically no. Or, or they offended me with a comment. So technically, they're really not my neighbor because they don't love me. Just, just like I, I'm supposed to do. See, the fan of Jesus looks at this and looks to justify themselves. Looks to create these rules to technically understand who my neighbor is. The fan wants to follow the rules. The fan wants to have a rule that clearly makes it easy for them to discard other people. Other people that they don't want to love on. They play this technically game. See, relationships that we have with others in our culture and the world, they have these different rules than what Jesus is looking at. Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God's word says. But the world says, well, you know what? If you hurt me, I can hurt you. If you lie to me, well, I can just ignore you. If you disagree with me, I can, I can just call you ignorant. That's, that's probably what you are. If you attack me, well, I can destroy you. That's the world's view. That's the rules that this guy wants to play by. If you're different than me, I don't have to love you if you're different. If you're not in my circles, well, I can assume that, that your circles will love you. Your circles will take care of you. Your circles will care about you. I don't have to worry about it. That's the, the worldly rule view on it, the, the fan view. It's possible to get to this place. It's possible to get to this place where you follow these rules and you say, well, you hurt me so, so I can hurt you or you hurt me so I don't need to even be a, a friend of yours or care about you. I can close you off. We can get to this place because of that hurt. We could be hurt so much that we just say, you know what? You're dead to me. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to do anything with anyone in, in relationships in that way. I'm not going to be vulnerable with people anymore. We can become this fan where we, we just create rules. And unless you're within those rules, then I don't have to love you. I don't have to have the love of Christ in my heart for you. It's possible to get to this place and call yourself a Christian and deem everyone that's not a Christian not worthy of your love and your care. See, this is the expert's point of view, is that if you're in my circle, if, if you're in the nation of Israel, if you're, if you're a Jewish person, well, then, then you're my neighbor and I'll love you. But if you aren't, then you're not a neighbor. I love how Timothy Keller said it. He says, not everyone is your brother or sister in the faith. 
but everyone is your neighbor and you must love your neighbor. And that's what Jesus points out to. He starts to explain. He gives them this parable to explain who is your neighbor. Because this expert in the law, he wants, to, he wants to create all these rules. But Jesus kind of upends it. And so we see it in verse 30. It says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, the, hearer, the hearers, these people, this, this expert in the law and those who are around, they would hear this and they would expect that man to be a Jewish man. That's just what would, they would assume that that's who Jesus is talking about. So here's this Jewish man who is leaving Jerusalem, going down to Jericho. Now, this is a actual real place, uh, Jerusalem and Jericho. The road that in between them is a real place. So these people would be tracking with what Jesus is saying. He's, he's giving this parable, but it's in real setting, in the real world. And they would understand this because that's... That road is about 21 miles long and it descends from uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up on the hill. It descends down into the valley where Jericho is and it's windy and there's these places where people would hide. Robbers and thieves would hide and would attack people. So this is not an uncommon thing. They're, They're tracking with Jesus. Okay, here's this guy. He's leaving Jerusalem, going to Jericho. He gets attacked. Now this is a person that they would consider a neighbor. And so Jesus continues on, verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And you would expect the priest to stop and do something. You would expect the priest to have the compassion. That's why Jesus is bringing him up in the story. You would expect the priest, the one who would teach people to to say the Shema, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. He would teach people to say that twice a day. You would expect this person, the priest, to come and help this man, but he doesn't. He goes to the other side of the road. Now, some could argue that he's a priest, And so priests had priestly duties and they needed to make sure that they were clean. One of the rules was to not touch a dead person because if you touched a dead person, you would be considered unclean and you couldn't fulfill your priestly duties. But he's leaving Jerusalem. He's done with his ministry. He's going home to Jericho. So that's actually not an issue. He can become unclean and go home and and deal with that. And he doesn't know if the guy's dead or not, but I could understand where he would maybe see that. He was naked, beat up. He's not moving. He, He may be dead, but we would assume that it's the priest who would do these things, but he doesn't. The priest would be expected to have this almost family duty to this, this man. And our families are our closest neighbors. Our families are our closest neighbors. Sometimes they're the hardest to love, because they're so close. It's easy to take them for granted. Our families tend to see us at our best and they see us at our worst. We take them for granted because they can't not be our family, they just are. The interactions we have with our, our family can be the most impactful. They can be, the, like when you get praise from your family, it's better than any praise that anyone else can give you. And when you're hurt by your family, it's the worst hurt that you can ever have because we're so close to our families. Your family is the closest neighbor that you'll ever have. So when your family is hurting, when there's someone in your family who's hurting, don't ignore it, thinking they'll, they'll, just, they'll just get over it, they'll get better. When you've, when you've messed up with your family, 
when you've, when you've done something wrong, don't just assume that they're going to they're gonna get over it, that they need to move on, but go to them and, and ask for forgiveness. This is how we love on our neighbor, love on our family. When, when there's been a break in trust, don't just, don't just think that it'll figure itself out or we can just not be close anymore. We can not have that, like work for reconciliation in your family. Have this idea that, that my family is my closest neighbor and my family is the one I'm supposed to love first. And so if there's a problem, we work on it. If there's a problem, we go and we talk about it. If I need to ask for forgiveness, I'm going to ask for forgiveness. If forgiveness needs to be given, I'm going to give forgiveness. I'm going to love them as my neighbor. Love them like I love myself because I would want to be forgiven, because I would want to be asked for forgiveness, because I would want the trust to be rebuilt. So we love our family as our first neighbor. Loving your neighbor means loving your family too. And we continue on, verse 32, so too a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Here's another minister of the Lord, a Levite, and he passes on the other side of the road as well, has no compassion, still no issue about the uncleanness because he's leaving Jerusalem as well, going down to Jericho, but he's still avoiding the man on the other side of the road. It's possible for us to just do that, to just move to the other side, to just ignore the problem. The rule follower sees this as the best way to deal with it. If I just don't make eye contact and I just go to the other side of the road, then I don't really have to deal with it. Then, then I didn't see the problem. And so I'm not guilty of, of not loving or not caring or not giving. I just assume that, that something else will take care of it. We can convince ourselves that other people will take care of the issue. Or we can convince ourselves, well, he probably deserved it. So I don't, I can just go on the other side. We can convince ourselves, like, if I help him, he'll never learn to help himself. We can convince ourselves that if I help him, well, then I'll have to help everybody. And I can't help everybody, so I probably just shouldn't help him. Because that is some logic, right? We can convince ourselves, what if he uses my help for bad? We've all seen it. We've seen the, the panhandler on the side of the street and we think, well, what if they take my money and go get drunk? What if they use it for drugs? What if they use it for bad? I can convince myself, well, that's why I'm not going to love on this person because they might use it for evil. We can convince ourselves that I don't have time. I just don't have time. Really, I don't want to make time. That's, the, that's what we're telling ourselves. But we tell ourselves, I don't have time. We can convince ourselves that they don't deserve our help. They probably got themselves in that situation. They should learn how to get out of it. They don't need our love. They're different from me. They're not in the same socioeconomic status as me. They think differently than me. They have different political views than me. So they don't deserve my love. We can convince ourselves that we can just walk on the other side, that we don't have to pay attention, that we can just turn a blind eye like this Levite, that we can just keep going without any compassion. And then Jesus gets to a very interesting character, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, who's a Samaritan? We've talked about this before, but just to recap, the Samaritans were people who were left behind when the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled, when the 
king of Assyria came and, and took over that country and they moved all the people out. There were some people that stayed, some Israelites that stayed. And this happened like in 722 BC. And, and, and these people who stayed, they ended up intermarrying with the Canaanites and the various different peoples that were there, the pagans, and they would worship their gods. And so the, the Jews, the Israelites that, that ended up in exile and that came back, saw the Samaritans as a half-breed. They were doing the things that you're not supposed to do. They were breaking the law by intermarrying and, and, and doing all of these things. And they started worshiping up in this northern kingdom, not at Jerusalem where you're supposed to, but they would made their own temple and they did all of these things. So the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, saw the Samaritans as, as less than them. In fact, here's a, here's a good image of the Jewish social structure I've got this image. So you see the priest is in the middle. He's kind of the high, like we see the priest needs much authority and much respect. And then you see the Levite. And then we call Joseph Jew, the regular, just Jewish person. And then you've got tax collectors, outcasts, and sinners. And then you have Samaritans. And then Gentiles. The average Jewish person would see the Samaritan as somebody who was worse than a tax collector, worse than an outcast, worse than a sinner, worse than a prostitute, worse than the guy who stole your car. It's just, this is just a half breed dog-like person that I don't even care about. And this person comes and sees this person who would not like them. This Jewish man who's, who's half dead on the road and he takes pity upon him. He has compassion for him. He, he goes to do something. What does he, uh, I love how Hampton Keithley says it. He says uh, about the Samaritan that he moved toward the injured man. This is so significant because you must move toward people in order to love, in order to build relationships. It doesn't just happen. It isn't convenient. Unlike the Levite and the priest who moved to the other side of the road to get away as far as they could, the Samaritan goes to get close, to create relationship, to, to understand that, that this person is a person. This person is worth my time and my effort. This person needs help. And so the Samaritan goes to help. And what does he do? We see it in verse 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. The Samaritan cared for this fellow human being, regardless of how he may feel about, about this Jewish person or how that person would feel about him. He just cared. He just loved. He loved as he would love himself. How do we love the unlovable? How do we love those that aren't on the same side as us? How do we love those who we feel are, are different in opinion and, and morals and ethical standards? We humble ourselves. See, see, if we don't humble ourselves, then we see ourselves as self-righteous and we see ourselves as better. We can get into that mindset of, of the Jewish person who said, that's just a Samaritan. You know, you shouldn't talk to that person. But when we humble ourselves and we recognize that it's another human being, that, that God has made them in his image and that they are worthy of his love, that, that he went to the cross for them just as much as he went to the cross for us, that, that he loves them and doesn't want to see them perish just as much as he loves us and doesn't want to see us perish. When we see people in that light, we see people through that lens, we can love on them. We can, we can care for them as a person. 
And we can, we can, it doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. It doesn't mean that we agree with maybe some of the choices that they're making. Maybe they are making immoral choices. Maybe they are living a life that's far from God. We're not agreeing to that, but we're agreeing that you are loved by God and that you're worthy of love. I want to treat you as my neighbor, as, as I would treat myself. We humble ourselves to do that. We have to be willing to put the relationship above the rules. We have to be willing to, to go to the person. We have to desire reconciliation. We have to desire right relationships. We have to desire uh, to not play the technically game. Jesus didn't play the technically game. He could have. There are all kinds of stories. There's the adulterous woman. Technically, she should have been stoned for being caught in an adulterous relationship. But Jesus valued the relationship. He looks at her and he, and, he, and he has compassion on her. And he tells everybody, whoever hasn't sinned, you cast the first stone and everybody leaves. And he doesn't condemn the wo- woman. He doesn't agree with what she did either. He says, go and sin no more. But he doesn't play the technical game. He doesn't say, technically, I could throw a stone. Technically, he's the only one that could throw the first stone. But he didn't. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. Technically, you were supposed to stay away from them. If you were a good Jew, if you were a good follower of God, you don't interact with those people. Because you're, you're, you would be seen as condoning with them and, and, and condoning their lifestyle. But Jesus didn't do that. He was able to, to bridge that gap to say, I love you. You're worth God's love. Turn away from that. Jesus could have played the technical game, but he healed on the Sabbath. The Pharisees called him out on it. This is the Sabbath. You can't do work. Jesus says, I'm, I'm giving mercy and grace. I'm healing somebody because the relationship is more important. Jesus even talked to a Samaritan woman at a well when he shouldn't have. Technically, the Israelites, the Jewish man, should not have talked to any woman there, let alone a Samaritan woman. But Jesus values the relationship. Jesus recognized she needed to hear love. She needed to hear encouragement. She needed to hear about the Messiah. Technically, Jesus didn't need to go to the cross. Technically, Jesus could have just said, you know what? I'm done with all you sinners. We're going to start over. But he valued the relationship. He wanted to be close to you and he wanted to be close to me. He wanted to walk with us and he wanted to be known and he wanted to know us. He didn't play the technical game. He loved because love wins over everything. (laughs) Love wins over everything. And so he goes to the cross for us and he's showing this expert in the law. He's saying, do you see the love? The Samaritan man who, who didn't need to love, who could have said, well, you know what? I've been treated this way by Jewish men all my life. I don't need to help that guy but he doesn't. And so Jesus continues on in verse 36. He asks him, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Do you notice that the expert in the law couldn't even say Samaritan? He just said the one who had mercy. Like his heart was still hardened. He was still just a rule follower. He did not want to see the Samaritan man as a neighbor. He didn't want to see just anyone as a neighbor, but just the people that I want to choose to be a neighbor. Because it's much easier if I get to choose who I love. It's much easier. 
But when God chooses who I love, well, then I have to submit. Then I have to serve. The expert had this technically correct answer there. But hear this. Love cannot be defined by rules. Love cannot be defined by rules. Our love knows no bounds. Jesus' love knows no bounds. And as that pours into us, as we recognize how much Jesus loves each and every one of us, even though I've done things that I shouldn't have done, even though I've been unlovable, and I receive that love, then I can pour out that love. Even if I know what they've done, even if I know the bad things, even if they don't agree with me, you can see that other person as yourself. I love how Jesus said it in Matthew 7. It's, it's known as the golden rule. Verse 12, and everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat others how you want to be treated. This is pretty, pretty, pretty radical because the rest of the world says, treat others as they treat you. It's this idea of like karma. Well, if you're bad to me, I can be bad to you. If you lie to me, I can lie to you. But Jesus upends it. He says, no, 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 no. Treat others as you would want to be treated. So if they lie to you, then trust them because you want to be trusted. If they hurt you, love them because you want to be loved. If they, if they go again, if they call you ignorant, then, then, then reconcile with them because you want to be reconciled with. Treat them as you want to be treated. Jesus turns this all upside down in his Sermon on the Mount. We see it in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Insert Will Smith joke here. <laughs> you like how I did that? That was a funny one. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You treat others as you want to be treated, not as you have been treated. I was once working with someone, working through an issue, uh, just some stuff. And this person seemed to really want to like just fight. They wanted to argue with me and they wanted to, I, I sensed this spirit of like combat. And I recognized, I was like, like, I could fall into that. We could do this. I'm ready. I got some ammo. That's how I felt. You know, I, I, I feel like I'm in the right. I could do this. But I recognize that that's not what God wants of us. That's not really where I want to go. So I just told this person, I said, I sense you have this spirit. And you know what? Go ahead. I'm just going to take it on the chin. You can beat me up all you want. If that's what you need, I'm just going to love you because I love you. I'm not going to like just go through the motions. I'm not just doing it to roll over and I don't care. I care about you. I love you. And I want to see you do better. And I want to see us do better. So I'm just going to take it. I can be a punching bag. I'll take it on the chin. I was willing to, to, to turn the other cheek because I knew that that was more important. I knew that the relationship was way more important Way more important than the rules, than being right, than saying, well, you have to live within these expectations or you have to do this or you have to do that. The, the, I, 
it was so much more important for me that we maintained the relationship. See, when we fight with friends, it's, it's difficult. I love how the proverb says, it says, an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. Jesus tells us to love someone like you want to be loved. Treat them as you would want to be treated. When we don't, then we have these offended friends and it's, it's harder to, to deal with them than, than going against a fortified city. See, our sinful, our, our human nature wants to fight back. Which says, if you hit me, then I'm going to hit you back. If you insult me, I'm going to insult you back. And sometimes it gets to the point where, like, not only am I just going to do the same thing that you did to me, but I'm going to do it even worse. I'm going to let you know we're going to end this. Like, I'm going to finish it. Because we can get to this point where, where our pride and our arrogance just, just supersedes anything else. We see no love for that person. We've now turned that person into the enemy as opposed to a fellow human being. Jesus continues on just uprooting this. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? That's easy. It's easy to love the people that love you. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than, the, than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We live in this polarized world. Everybody wants to turn it black and white or red and blue. It pains me when I look at the news and I look at social media and I see people just treat each other with just disdain and hate. I'm not saying we all have to agree on everything. But what I'm seeing Jesus tell us, what I'm seeing in the word of God is that there's a way to love other people that we disagree with. There's a way to, to have a conversation and to respect each other and to show kindness and to be treated or to treat others as I want to be treated. The follower of Jesus recognizes that everyone is made in the image of God. That everyone is on God's hit list to be saved. He wants none to perish. And the last thing I, I think about myself, the last thing I want to do is push someone farther from Jesus. And if I recognize that Jesus is love, that, that everything that he lived for was to show love in the, the most grandest, ridiculous way, to go to a cross, to die for his enemies, as it says in Romans, while we were still sinners, while we still hated him, he went and died for us so that we would have life. When I recognize that, I don't want to push anyone away from that. I want to love my neighbor, even if we disagree, because it's not my job to change their heart. That's God's job. My, God is, my, my job is just to love like God loved. That's all my job is, to share Jesus and to love them, to love my neighbor as I'd love myself. 
We love our enemies. Jack Hiles said it best. I say say it best. He said it really well. You will never really love until you love someone who hates you. If you could love someone who hates you, who doesn't want to be around you, who doesn't want to hear your words, who doesn't even respect you, then you know what it's like to love like Jesus. Romans 12, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. The follower of Jesus sees every other person as someone worthy of God's love and so doesn't pretend to love them, but actually displays love. Now remember, this, this love is a display. It's an action. We're not talking about just love them in your heart and walk away. That's likely what the priest and the Levite did. They said, oh, I love that guy, but I'm going to the other side of the street. I wish no ill upon him, but I'm going to go over here and not help him. No, we have to, our, our love has to have actions. We have to forgive our neighbors. We have to ask for forgiveness of our neighbors. We need to help in times of need. We need to give food and, and do lawn work for people and give them rides to the airport and be generous and care for them in, in, in real and tangible ways. We encourage each other. When you recognize your neighbor is down, having a bad day, encourage them. Give them a word of, of just, you know what? Life may be really hard right now, but Jesus is with you. God loves you. God sees you. We love in tangible ways. We give phone calls. We give texts. We invite people over for dinner. If we know they're lonely. We know they're going through something hard. We pray for them. We pray for our enemies. That's what Jesus said to do. Dr. David Jeremiah said, love is worthless unless it acts out, unless it is expressed in deed and behavior. We are to love our neighbor in a tangible way. And Jesus said it in John 13. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. The follower of Jesus knows no rules that bind their love from others. They're not the expert in the law who says, well, who's my neighbor? Can I, can I disclassify this person as my neighbor? The follower says, everyone is my neighbor. And I want to show love like Jesus showed love. The follower says there's no limit. The follower recognizes that Jesus was a servant to many, even to Judas, the one who betrayed him. Jesus washed all of their feet. He loved to the point of cross. And we're to be Christ-like. We're to love like Christ loved. Don't play the technically game. Don't try to draw lines. Don't try to justify why you don't have to love someone. Because I don't think God buys any of it. I don't think he's okay with any of it. Look for an opportunity to love in a ridiculous way this week. That's my challenge to you. Find someone be on the watch for someone who is unlovable. That person may be in your house. That person may be on the side of the street. That person may be someone you work with. And just love them in a real way. Not just in your heart. I mean, it starts there. But do something real and tangible to show them that you love them, that you care for them. 
Love like Jesus loved, because everyone is your neighbor. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your love. I thank you for loving us to the point of the cross. God, would you, um, would you move in each of our hearts? None of us have it all together, and we all have various different relationships, people that we're interacting with on a daily basis, God. And as we hear your word, we recognize that uh, there, is no, there is no limit to who our neighbor is. There is no limit to who we are to love. So God, teach us to love others as, as we would love ourselves. Teach us, God, this week. Give, give each and every one of us an opportunity to love in a, in a ridiculous way that can't be explained by coincidence or any other thing, but that we know, God, you were in it. If you're here today and, and you recognize that you haven't ever experienced the, the love of Christ, the love of God in your life, that, that, that something's missing, that you haven't given your, your life to him, and, and you just want to start there and just say this prayer, Jesus, I need your love in my heart before I can love anyone else. And I know what's keeping your love away from me. I'm just not choosing you because you chose me long before long before the world was created. I give you my life. God, I, for, I ask for your forgiveness. Fill me with your love. Let it overflow. I give you my life. I give you everything. I want to be a follower of relationships. Help me grow. Help me change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.